Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Mectic. As always, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com to support us, sign up and get bonus content. And if you sign up, you also can join us every Tuesday at noon Eastern time in the Absurd Arena where we're there to live chat with you. And it's been a lot of fun so far. We talked about conspiracy theories, boredom, and yet it's not boring. <laughs> Imagine that. All right, so let's get to our four food groups. What do we have for Democrats suck? So for Democrats suck, let's go to this Democracy Now! story. President Joe Biden has nominated former MasterCard CEO A.J. Banga to lead the World Bank. If approved, Banga would be the first ever Indian American and first Sikh American to lead either the World Bank or the IMF. He previously worked for Nestle, PepsiCo, and Citigroup, and now serves as vice chair at the Wall Street investment firm General Atlantic. The anti-corruption group The Revolving Door Project condemned the selection, writing, quote, President Joe Biden and Secretary Yellen have literally named the vice chairman of a rapacious international private equity firm to take his first job ever in public service at nearly the highest level in the world possible. Nothing in Banga's resume inspires confidence that he will turn the World Bank away from a path of neocolonialism and predation by global North corporations upon global South countries, they said. I don't know. I kind of think that Democracy Now! or any news outlets, when they make announcements like these, shouldn't include the first that a person would be. Like, shouldn't include the fact that, if approved, Bongo would be the first ever Indian American and first Sikh American to lead either the World Bank or the IMF. Because why does that matter? I mean, I know representation matters, but it seems to me like it kind of helps the Biden administration whitewash, for lack of a better word, wokewash their appointments or their nominations or their their uh, the administration in general, because they're always bragging about how diverse their the administration is, which is great, but it's not enough. And, you know, substance is the thing that matters. Yeah, uh, that's quite the resume he has. MasterCard, Nestle, PepsiCo, and Citigroup. I guess of all those four in terms of like, which of those companies has done the least damage to the world? Like, it's a tough, I guess MasterCard's probably done the least compared to Nestle, PepsiCo, and Citigroup. Yeah. Citigroup, I wonder who's done more damage, Nestle or Citigroup? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a tough call. We could do a whole show on that, yeah. Yeah. Nestle, it's terrible stuff, which is so, it's so wrong because- it tastes so good. Yeah. The uh, the World Bank and the IMF, that's also a competition for who does the most evil. I think the IMF probably is more evil than the World Bank, I think. So at least he has that going for him. He's not going to take over the IMF. He's just going to the World Bank. So right. very qualified for that job, given all the evil corporations he's worked for. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, he is qualified for that job, I guess. Oh, very- I guess maybe we should uh, almost celebrate. He's definitely very qualified based on what yeah. the World Bank does, locking global South countries into crippling austerity and uh, using loans to either support governments that the U.S. wants to promote or undermine governments that the U.S. wants to destabilize. That's kind of the World Bank's thing. So that's my Democrat suck. All right. For Republicans suck, let's go to Tennessee, where Governor Bill Lee is about to sign a controversial bill into law. Uh, This is the headline from the Tennessean. Governor Bill Lee will sign drag bill reacts to yearbook photo showing him dressed as a woman. So Tennessee Governor Bill Lee is signing an 
anti-drag show bill into law. The bill bans adult-oriented entertainment that is harmful to minors from public property in places when they might be seen by children. Uh, the law specifically mentions go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, and male or female impersonators, the latter of which includes drag performers. Under the bill, a first offense would be charged as a misdemeanor and the second a felony. But making this kind of awkward for Governor Lee is that a high school yearbook photo has surfaced in which he is dressed as a woman. And he's also a minor at this point if he's still in high school, which would mean that he's subjecting other minors to something that he now deems to be illegal. Right. Although, to be fair, by this logic of protecting minors, maybe he would have said he was like trafficked or something. Like he was a victim. Oh, so he'd be a victim. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why he's so opposed to drag because he himself suffered when he wore it. <laughs> I didn't consider that. Yeah he's, yeah. he's applying his lived experience. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, fair enough. I take it back then. So, uh, Governor Bill Lee, thank you for your service. Your service and you know sharing with us your, your lived experience as a former drag performer yourself. Right. Yeah. Very yeah. bold. Very bold. Yeah. I just like it's I mean, obviously, it's just rank hypocrisy, but you got to love it. How the Republicans do do a better job, I feel like, of, of embracing their hypocrisy than Democrats. Mm -hmm. I kind of I like his outfit. It's like shorts and it looks like a, a blouse. You got some pearls. A nice He's a professional. Wig. He's, a professional. He's a professional. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. he has these boots that are really the, uh, the icing on the cake. I like it. But in all fairness, Aaron, I should add that this isn't the first controversy he's gotten into because he uh, attended old South parties, I guess, as is one's want when they're white and in Tennessee, uh, while an undergraduate student at Auburn University and a yearbook photo surfaced of him dressed as a Confederate soldier. And that is something he regrets. Now, what he wow. really needs to do is a drag Confederate soldier outfit. Yeah. And then a bill banning drag Confederate soldiers outfit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. All right, what do we have for Isn't That Weird? For Isn't That Weird, I have a story that's um, full of surprise. It's heartwarming, but it's also uh, full of surprise. So a woman raises what she thought was a 250-pound pet mastiff for two years. Uh, the family thought it was a Tibetan mastiff. But then, Aaron, people became suspicious. She became suspicious of the animal and whether or not it was indeed a dog. Uh, because it eventually weighed over 250 pounds, it kept growing and ate a, a lot of food, a box of fruits and two buckets of noodles every day. This is in China, by the way. Guess what this dog really was? Uh, a wolf or? Uh, bigger. Bigger than a wolf. And less dog-like than a wolf. Wow. Well, let's, let's find out. What is it? It turns out it was an endangered bear. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Let's see the video. This wild Asian black bear protected species was raised by, as a family pet. It's really cute. By a Chinese family who mistakenly thought it was a puppy. <laughs> After the pet grew into a nearly full-size bear, 
the family realized they had made a mistake and went to the police. Wow. Well, that's quite the story. As cute well, as it is. As cute as it is, yeah. yeah. But maybe if he was raised as a dog, I wonder if he he like started behaving as a dog. That would be interesting. Yeah. It would be like an interesting nature versus nurture experiment. Yeah. The bear yeah. who was raised as a dog. That's a that's a crazy story. Yeah. Katie, what would you do if you found out that Bodhi was actually a bear? I'd keep her and I wouldn't tell anyone. <laughs> she does look like a lot like an Ewok. <laughs> I would believe that if someone told me that she was an Ewok. Yeah. <laughs> All right. For this week's Isn't That Terrible? My favorite podcast, of course, Katie, you know, is The Unfiltered Bride. And how can you oh, yeah. not listen to The Unfiltered Bride? And check yeah. out uh, this story that comes via wedding planner Georgia Mitchell. I need to tell you a story that I know. Okay. So, oh, I'm scared. You should be. On two occasions, I've been told this story. I was not at this wedding, but on two occasions, I've been told this, both by makeup artists. We'll call her Jenny. Jenny says to me, I did a wedding the other day, and you never guess what happened. She said the bride needs to go to the toilet just before the ceremony. This is like pre-ceremony. And she walked into the toilet, and what she saw is enough to end a wedding. <gasps> what do you think she saw? Was he with someone else? No, worse. Having a wank? <laughs> Worse. Getting wanked. <laughs> Worse. I don't Worse know. Worse than anything sexual. But he was in there. The groom was in there. Doing drugs? No. He was being breastfed by his mum. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? Why would you marry a man that's getting bitten? Well, I, I don't think she knew that that was what was happening. One last, one last. Uh, why is his mum still producing milk? She's obviously been doing it continuously to get to that bit. Absolutely. Would you call off the wedding? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Everybody is in the room waiting. You definitely wouldn't kiss when they say you can kiss the groom. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say that's a deal breaker. If uh, you were to catch your partner being breastfed by their mother, I just, you know, the thing is, she's hearing this secondhand. So right. we really... The, the, the responsible journalist in you, Aaron, is is you didn't vet... You have not found confirmation of the story you have no, not corroborated not. it right it's no. just an allegation yeah i'm not hearing uh, uh none of my sources have confirmed this story right so yeah quite the story though if true wow if true terrible if true and definitely a deal breaker but if it is true good for the groom who obviously has a huge dependence on his mother to leave the nest and get married to somebody else um you're right given how, how dependent and yeah like warp their relationship is it's actually a sign of a real um strength and health yeah and self-care that he was able to be in a relationship yeah the yeah. question is whether he expects his his now wife to take over the breastfeeding duties right his mother right if she even went through with it i mean what kind of person would go i mean i guess if you really love someone if you made them get help my problem is what are the odds first of all before marriage you're not supposed to see you're oh. the person you're marrying so right. what are the odds that you happen to walk into a bathroom and it's the bride or the groom and the mother are so non uh like like are so sloppy that they get caught right. breastfeeding but it's, it's just uh you know I don't know. i'm gonna yeah. bet this story is not true but hey who knows you're saying if you were engaged in that behavior you'd probably hide it more yeah yeah and you certainly would not get caught by your wife-to-be yeah yeah Let's hope. Maybe a yeah. caterer or something like that, but right. Well, you're really putting a lot of stock in that tradition of uh, not seeing your bri the bride or groom yeah. not seeing each other. I like yeah. that. Like for you, that that disproves the story. 
in my experience, people respect it. Yeah. But anyway, certainly I'm not imputing the integrity of my favorite podcast, the unfiltered bride. Um, of course, I, I would never challenge the the journalism of the unfiltered bride, my right. favorite podcast. So yeah. yeah. And those are the four basic food groups. This week's guest is Glenn Deason. He is professor at the University of Southeastern Norway, author of the book, Russophobia, Propaganda in International Politics. And you can follow him on Twitter at Glenn underscore Deason. That's G-L-E-N-N underscore D-I-E-S-E-N. Glenn Deason, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. As we're speaking, there have been a number of uh, protests calling for peace inside Europe, tens of thousands of people turning out in Berlin, uh, London, Paris, uh, Brussels, the Ramstein Air Base in Germany, home to uh, the NATO Air Force in Europe. Uh, talk to us about the anti-war sentiment that is growing in Europe and, and overall, you know, where Europe is at in relationship to this proxy war. Yeah, well, first it should be said, this is a bit yeah, ironic because uh, when we put, put all the sanctions on Russia, it was meant to be there the protest would uh, go on and uh, eventually push a regime change. But uh, no, the, the protests are definitely increasing uh, across Europe. There's a, a war, war fatigue. There's also sanction fatigue. Um, now, I, I guess there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, uh, well, first of all, the, the war has been going on for a while. Uh, this uh, promises of a huge, uh, you know, Ukrainian victory over Russia. It hasn't played out, and indeed, we're seeing it going the other way. So people are be becoming much more critical. Uh, the economic toll is also increasing. The inflation is, uh, yeah, getting out of control, uh, and a lot of countries now in Europe are having huge uh, economic uh, problems. Uh, I think also many. European countries, because they believed the war would be Russia would be defeated quickly, they didn't understand that they expected the sanctions to be over quickly as well. So, the cost of having our industries cut off Russian industries, they're also now sorry, cut off Russian energy resources. They're no longer competitive because this is the lifeblood of a competitive industry. So, we're having yeah, this huge economic problems. This is a huge reason for it. The war isn't going the way, but also I think many people are becoming more politically aware because from day one most people didn't know much about it they didn't know that the conflict had been going on since 2014 and uh you know we were told this is simply a you know aspiring democracy and then you know putin woke up one day he wanted new territories and invaded so uh, a lot of the context as well as nato's involvement in provoking this war uh, a lot of this was absent so i think now that yeah the military failures economic and political awareness is coming through you see a lot of discontent across europe so you're correct i think germany france and britain obviously leading a lot of this um uh, these problems you wouldn't necessarily know though because in the media it's not the great coverage of uh, of this very huge protest i mean tens of thousands of people taking to the streets in berlin alone and um, usually if it is mentioned it's often in derogatory terms so they have fallen for the russian propaganda they're putinists they don't care about the plight of ukrainians uh because you know as the narrative goes if you care about ukrainians you you're for sending more weapons and escalation so uh, there's an effort to suppress this but i think it it is only growing and um, uh, yeah at, at some point i think it's going to be very hard to ignore it you are in norway uh yes that's correct and so what's it been like for you as someone who's been um, very vocal in 
criticizing, uh, you know, the proxy war narrative and debunking proxy war propaganda. Uh, what has the intellectual climate been like for you um, in terms of your ability to be able to voice your opinions and and not face McCarthyite attacks for it? Well, I've been lucky because I'm at the university where they uh, where they prioritize uh, academic freedom. So I've had that protection, if you will, from the university. But uh, the problem mostly comes from the media. So you have uh, journalists, you know, uh, never actually debating you or or asking for uh, coming with counter arguments. Uh, instead, it's always smearing. It's, uh, you know, you, you have to choose the right side. Are you with us or are you with the Russians? And uh, unless you're saying this was a completely unprovoked conflict, NATO had nothing to do with it. It began in 2014. It's only about Russia seeking territory. Unless you go with this narrative, you become a Putinist, a Russian propagandist. So, um, so there's a lot of smear tactics in the media. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think that yeah, the, one of the last articles uh, someone wrote about me was one of the papers in Norway. They wrote a seven-page article about me with the front page, apparently, saying that, I mean, it's very problematic. I work for a Norwegian university because I'm in breach of international law for for spreading war propaganda, um, which was weird because I never even supported the Russian invasion. Uh, but as the article suggested, because I don't, I don't have to support the invasion, but because I sometimes write for Russian media and interviewed by Russian media, this means I'm contributing to Russian propaganda and hence I'm in breach of international law and I should be punished. Uh, definitely do not deserve working at a, as a professor at a Norwegian university. So there's a, there's a, <laughs> yeah, a bit of a crazy climate uh, at the moment. It's, uh, uh, yeah, very, very little discussion. It's, uh, you know, we we used to, you know, suggest that, you know, you don't go after the man, you go after the argument. But uh, I think this is all out the window now. There's no arguments left. It's only, you know, dragging your name through the mud and trying to destroy your professional career. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it's very unfortunate. And this is uh, coming from me. And I, I, as I mentioned, I didn't even support this invasion. I, my argument was merely that this is a proxy war. Uh, one which been, has been building up for quite some time. And again, I've been saying this for uh, what's well, at least since 2004. So, you know, it's a bit strange now if almost 20 years later, I should probably suddenly say, no, no, we're not moving towards war in Ukraine. It's uh, it's, it's it's nonsense. So, um, at you know, it, it doesn't matter if you've been consistent uh, saying this for 20, almost 20 years uh, be because you don't follow the narrative, you yeah you become labeled, and none of the local media then wants to touch you anymore because yeah then they're associated. Glenn, uh, explain briefly why you've been saying this since 2004. Because most people start the date at say 2014 when there was a U.S.-backed coup. You're going back earlier to 2004, to the time of the so-called color revolutions that the U.S. supported uh, in places including Ukraine. Yeah, because, well, uh, we often have this narrative that, uh, you know, Ukraine always just want to escape the uh, Russia's claws and get into the Western embrace. But as we see, every poll from 91 to 2014 has showed that uh, the Ukrainians did not want to join NATO. Uh, only about 20% wanted this. And if they had to choose between the West and Russia, uh, most have favored uh, Russian formats or Russian-led integration schemes. So what happened in 2004 was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, which uh, 
well the the more russian friendly candidate was uh, pushed aside in for in favor of yushenko which was very anti-russian pro-nato uh, candidate now when this happened of course uh, you know the us said oh this is a democratic revolution but at least at this point we had more critical voices in western media I remember the guardian wrote many articles where they uh, argued that this is you know american was was america essentially winning elections for others it was a coup this is how it was described which i think was uh, largely a correct description so anyways they got yushchenko uh, this anti russian president uh, after the orange revolution in 2004 uh, but as it turned out, he became very, very unpopular. I think Newsweek once uh, referred to him as the most unpopular leader in the world. He had like 2.7% approval rating towards the end. So at the end, the Ukrainians got rid of him uh, and they they returned to the original candidate, which was uh, Viktor Yanukovych. And uh, well, again, it was since then I, I, I kind of made the argument that this is very dangerous because... Uh, as uh, you know, countless uh, American officials have recognized, uh, a NATO Ukraine in NATO is an existential threat to Russia, and also it would unleash a civil war probably in Ukraine because uh, it's so unpopular. Uh, I would just point out one last thing. This is what the argument was of William Burns, which was the ambassador to uh, Moscow and now the CIA director uh, in 2008. He warned in this WikiLeaks cable that if uh, the U.S. would continue to push Ukraine into NATO. Uh, they would probably unleash a civil war, something the Germans and French agreed with, and that Russia would probably intervene militarily, even though they would really not like to do this. Uh, so, again, this is why I've been saying it since 2014. The problem, though, after uh, losing, uh, after Yanukovych came in 2010, is uh, this time I think uh, the United States and NATO in general are more... Uh, they determined that uh, their candidate will stay. So, uh, so I, I don't think there's possibility anymore after 2014 to have a Russian-friendly candidate in in Ukraine. You say that you um, didn't support the invasion. You frame this as a proxy war. That's your historical view. But what should be done now, and what should the West be doing? Uh, it's a great question. I think, uh, well, the most important thing is we should uh, f find a way of um, having a, a, a compromise, uh, sit down with uh, the Russians and, and find a settlement. Now, uh, this is always denounced because negotiations have become a naughty word now in which we say, oh, this means, uh, you know, we, we can't give away U Ukrainian territory. But but my, my argument is that uh, NATO's involvement in this can have a positive uh, impact as well, because what what Russia's primarily after is security guarantees. It doesn't want NATO on its borders. If it has to occupy Ukraine to prevent this, it will. But but uh, in NATO, if we provide some kind of security guarantees to the Russians, this would then enable the Russians to take a step back. Now this has gone on for so long, and well, they've had, had so many losses. I don't think they're going to leave Donbas, for example, uh, uh, no matter what. Uh, but uh, the first step surely has to be negotiations because uh, I'm not sure where else would go from this, especially at this point in time in the war. It's becoming very, very uh, dangerous situation. The reason is that because Ukraine is losing the war. I mean, they lost all the manpower. It's not sustainable. They lost their equipment and ammunition. We even depleted the NATO's um, weapon storages, uh, not just uh, our equipment, but also ammunition. 
uh, the the sanctions haven't been working. So what what do we do now that we run out of weapons? Uh, there's only two options. We can either escalate further, that means heavier long-range weapons, or send our own troops in, or we can sit down and negotiate. This is the only two options we have now. And uh, uh, again, the, the main impulse is always to double down. So I've, I, I fear that that's the wrong decision. So I think this point in time, we should really sit down and yeah, uh, start talking at least. Could you react to this argument that I've been hearing? I don't know if you, you guys have been hearing it, but the left that wants negotiation and diplomacy, that we're being naive, that Putin's never going to uh, come to the table right now, that he's winning. Why would he come to the table? What does it mean, diplomacy? Uh, I've, hear, I've heard some people really dismiss that even as a possibility. Uh, so what's your response to that? Well, that argument goes that you can't negotiate with Putin. Um, and uh, it, it's never been possible. And he only respects force. But again, I don't I don't think there's any, I think all evidence available uh, suggests the opposite. Uh, keep in mind that when... Uh, when Russia first sent its troops in, it, it, it explained it quite clearly. It had a very limited objective with limited means. So the objective was to impose a settlement on Ukraine because the West had undermined the Minsk agreement for seven years. And we know this. The French have uh, admitted it. The Germans have admitted it. The Ukrainians have as well. And the means to do this was to send limited force in and pressure Kiev. And we know this is true because within the first few days, they began to initiate negotiations with Kiev. And as the negotiators suggested, and that's both the, the Israelis and the Turks, uh, was that you know the negotiations were going uh, well. They were close to peace. The main thing Russia was after was no more NATO expansion and keep the U.S. Uh, military in. Uh, weapon systems away from the Russian border within Ukraine. So th this was the, the main thing they were after. Again, it's not this has been confirmed in the Ukrainian media, US media, you know, uh, and even um, top officials in the US, Fiona Hill and Angela Stent, well, not officials, I think there used to be in, in intelligence. Anyways, they published also foreign affairs pointing out, yes, in March already, right after invasion, they were close to an agreement. The main thing Russia wanted was no more NATO expansion. And so for me, what this proves is, yes, you can talk to Putin, you know, Russia is willing to come make a compromise. And again, this is all about NATO. They do not want NATO on their borders. Admitting this does not mean that one has to uh, celebrate invasion or before it. It just means that you have to be honest about what this war is about. And it, it is it is about NATO. And, and Russia has shown that it's willing to negotiate. So I, I would say the opposite. I think it's the West that has been sabotaging this uh, uh, these negotiations. And again, this is also something that we learned from the Israeli prime minister, the Turkish foreign minister, uh, even Boris Johnson, he went around after he had uh, contributed to sabotage the peace agreements, he said very clearly, uh, you know, we don't want a bad peace. So it's, uh, I, yeah, it's, uh, for me, there should be enough evidence now to show this, that the, that you can't talk, that you can't talk to the Russians, that they are willing to make compromise. And it's about NATO. But this is very difficult to say now. If you say this out loud in the West, you become a Russian propagandist. You become a useful idiot, if you will. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, just, to, just to underline this point, you have four different NATO-aligned sources confirming that there was a, a peace agreement or the outline of a peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine. You have sources close to Zelensky. They're the ones who revealed that Boris Johnson came over in April and sabotaged it. Then you have, as you mentioned, Fiona Hill uh, in Foreign Affairs. Uh, then you have the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, and you also have the Turkish Foreign Minister saying that 
there was a peace agreement, but the West wanted to keep fighting Putin. Everyone said the same thing. It's only Fiona Hill who didn't report who blocked it, but we can put the pieces together based on all the other sources. And yet you can't even acknowledge that in U.S. media. The New York Times recently, for the first time, acknowledged Naftali Bennett's comments, but they haven't acknowledged everybody else's. And it's just not allowed to be discussed inside Western media. It's also German general, uh, Harald Kuyat. He's... uh... He was also on the NATO, uh, I forgot the name of it, like, some NATO council. Uh, anyways, a general. Was in he the, forced he, to resign? Was he one of the people forced uh, to resign? No, he, he, he was, he had to retired. Uh, no, okay. no, that, that, that was the other one. That was the head of the Navy, I think. Okay. Uh, that was before the Russians invaded the the, yeah. the the German head of the Navy. I think he, he suggested, listen, what the Russians are asking for is quite reasonable. Just, uh, yeah. uh, you know, let's, let's treat them with some respect. Uh, and then he had to go. He had to, he had to go, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> But this uh, this German general, he was uh, yeah he's, he's he's retired. But again, he was top in the NATO uh, system, and he 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 confirmed this as well. Like he said, no, I, he knows firsthand that the U.S. and British uh, sabotaged these um, uh, these peace negotiations because, much like the Turks and the Israelis, uh, he he said, well, this is what they wanted. They this an opportunity now to fight the the Russians with uh, with, with with Ukrainians. It's a great proxy war. And again, it's been confirmed also by many uh, American leaders. I think uh, Mitch McConnell, you know, he, he had a long speech where he made this point as well. This is not about some idealism. This is about hard, cold American interests. He said, Lindsey yeah. Graham said as well, we have a great format now with Kiev. We supply the weapons and Zelensky promised to fight to the last Ukrainian. This is, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, I, I just, I, it's, it's, it's baffling to me that how much evidence is required and you know everything is there, and nonetheless, uh, you know if you say something out loud in the media here, you are castigated as a Russian stooge and a agent. If yeah. you will. it's uh, quite obscene. Well, Glenn, uh, let's play the latest U.S. official to admit this. I mean, we've played the Lindsey Graham clip so many times for our audience; they don't need to hear it again. But Samantha Power, who is a top official under Biden, the head of USAID, you know, veteran of the Obama administration, where she was a key player in the uh, war that destroyed Libya and also the dirty war in Syria. Well, she recently gave a CNN town hall, and she also basically admitted that Ukrainians are giving their lives on behalf of U.S. hegemony. What is at stake in Ukraine are values and interests so core to the United States. I mean, imagine just wanting your freedom and your independence. I mean, this, this country is predicated on exactly those two values. Imagine the counterfactual where we walk away or we didn't show up in the first place and what that would mean when a dictator who has shut down civil society, shut down independent media, shut down dissenting voices in his own country, then can just turn his sights on a neighbor and with impunity take over that country. I mean, what would that mean for our allies in Europe? What would that mean for our own security over time? So. I think, you know, Americans understand bullies and the importance of standing up to bullies. At the same time, again, we're very alert to the risks, uh, given that Russia is a nuclear armed power, as you rightly uh, uh, say. Uh, but that that is, again, how we are in the position that we are in now, building a coalition of countries coming together, making sure that this isn't just the United States and Russia, uh, that this, in fact, is Ukrainians on the front lines, Ukrainians doing the fighting, and a coalition of 50 countries rallying behind them, and including actually today, 100, more than 140 countries at the UN 
signaling still a year into the war their support for Ukraine's self-defense. She does have a good point when she says that the United States understands bullying because we are experts in that field. <laughs> in the field of and she says it there. It's Ukrainians on the front lines doing the fighting um, on our behalf, of course. Yeah, and I, I could be quite sympathetic towards this argument if if the narrative would have been correct that on one on February of 2022, if uh, suddenly just, uh, you know, the Russians woke up and wanted to take some territory, then, yeah, I think it's quite... Uh, and I, I might agree with a lot of this, but but kind of she leaves out all all the the whole uh, narrative since 2014, when the, the United States uh, exerted more and more influence over Ukraine and began to militarize its borders. So, I mean, this the um, I read uh, read this interview by the um, the for the the former CIA uh, head of uh, Russian analysis. Uh, he was doing this interview with uh, uh, Radio Free Europe, and he was making this point. It was only two months before the Russians invaded, saying, uh, listen, the risk, the risk of Russian inaction is growing immensely because the Americans and NATO are, you know, they're modernizing uh, Ukrainian ports on the Black Sea to, you know, to uh, to accommodate American warships. They're, the Americans are trenching them further and further in Ukraine. They're building up these huge military forces, which can defeat the Donbas. Uh, you know, increasingly having more and more interoperability with NATO. They, you know, doing all this military exercise of the Russian coast to send a clear signal that this is our army. And uh, you know, this, as uh, effectively, his argument was. Uh, Russia's reaching the point where it's uh, now or never. It's uh, it's becoming yeah again the risk of inaction doing nothing is becoming greater than the risk of action which is invading, and this is um, so so pretending this happened out of the blue yeah it, it's absurd. But again, the reason why we don't have a debate is if you argue that this was provoked, then you're arguing that uh, it was justified, and if you justify war, then well at least in Europe, then you're out of a job and thrown out of polite society. So it's. Uh, it's uh, yeah, quite a crazy situation. She's making the argument that we've heard a lot, which is that this sets a dangerous precedent. It's almost like a dominoes theory type of argument that if we allow this to happen, he's going to keep going. Or other dictators, as they call him, um, as they call Putin, are going to be emboldened to do the same thing. I, I don't I mean, I think the evidence doesn't support that. But what is your response to that uh, argument, which we hear more and more? Well, again, that argument, uh, if that argument would have appeared only from February 2022, I would also perhaps agree with. It. But again, even in negotiations in December of 2021, before uh, the invasion, uh, we, we saw this was the same argument. I forgot the former U.S. Um, ambassador to NATO, Kurt Volker. He, was, he had this statement where he argued we should not give anything to the Russians in these peace negotiations before Russians invaded. He said, uh, he said, success is confrontation. Yes. That was yeah, his success, mantra. Yeah, success, success is, is confrontation. Yeah. Yeah, one has to think about that statement. Success is confrontation. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason why this is, is exactly what, what, what you point out, Katie, which is uh, if we give the Russians anything, if we give them any security guarantees, any limitations on NATO expansion or military systems on the Russian borders, uh, they will effectively have won. So we can't give them anything because this is, you know, this is the U.S.-led system. And uh, so, so again, it's better to have confrontation than to give any, give anything is appeasement. And this is, again, the, the common rhetoric we have is uh, everyone is Hitler. And uh, yeah. the only history book we have is uh, right. 90s and 30s and everything is Munich. Chamberlain, so, appeasement, Munich. Yeah. <laughs> Any compromise is appeasement. So the negotiations are naughty. This is the, well, what we get over and over. And right. it's 
in you can go further back as well this is what happened after the you know if you go back to Gorbachev and he negotiated this was a peace offensive it was just trying to fool us to split us this was in 1990s you know the Russians had walked away from empire they said their only goal was to integrate in, in a greater Europe. No, 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 they shouldn't be allowed to split us. So we, we, keep, we keep them out. Every time the Russians proposed a pan-European security agreement, uh, it was always the argument uh, through the 90s to 2000s is now, well, they just want to get on the insides to divide us. Uh, we, we shouldn't give in. You know, we have to police them effectively. So it's not a new argument. Uh, that's why I'm saying if it only appeared after February 2022, I, I might be more sympathetic, but this is, you know, uh, this is what we always say about Russia. Any peace agreement is actually a sneaky ploy. So, yeah. It's really scary because I feel like I, I used to think that if people just saw that the U.S. and the West were blocking peace, then they'd be like, oh, OK, so obviously we're in the wrong. We need to be doing the right thing, which is pursuing diplomacy and negotiation and peace. But you really have people who are like, OK, that's fine. And we should be doing that because confrontation is uh, is the way to go. And I don't know how to reach those people. It's quite it's a pretty scary moment. No, I I, I com- uh, completely agree, and I that's why it's it's uh, so difficult to have a, a sensible debate here because you can lay out the facts, and um, it doesn't matter. It's either you fight to the last Ukrainian or you're pro-Russian. It's uh, <laughs> It's uh, it's quite obscene. I've been I've been trying to point out that uh, you know this false narrative that we're actually helping the Ukrainians because uh, I don't because our, our language has become so moral that you know that we just yeah. want to do a good thing and you know if if you try to suggest that no, Russians have interest, we have interest, uh, you know, and in, in order to have peace, we have to compromise. But when everything is about morality, everything is good versus evil. Compromise means good uh, compromising with evil. It becomes appeasement. You know, the only way you can have peace is when good defeats evil. So this is kind of the the dangerous propaganda we walked into. So people don't care anymore. Oh, we sabotage peace agreements. Oh, we provoked a bit this war. Well, you know, it's we, we we're still fighting for the right cause. So right. so we might you know we might do the wrong thing, but for the right reason. So this is uh, I think this is the mentality. So it's um, yeah, it's hard to get around this propaganda, unfortunately. Let's go to a few more clips to your point about this war not starting in February 2022. This is NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg recently acknowledging that this phase of the war actually began in February 2014 um, after the U.S.-backed coup, which he didn't mention. But the timeline, according to his own narrative, starts way, way before Russia invaded. This is what Jens Stoltenberg said. didn't start in February last year. The war started in 2014, and since 2014, NATO allies have provided support to Ukraine with training, with equipment, uh, so the Ukrainian armed forces were much stronger uh, uh, in 2022 than they were in, 2020, uh, in 2014. And of course, that made a huge difference when uh, President Putin uh, decided to attack Ukraine. So there he's trying to brag about how much support NATO has given to Ukraine since 2014. In the process, he's inadvertently admitting that this has been a proxy war since 2014 and that uh, the war didn't begin when Russia invaded. Um, another clip, let's actually go back to 2014. Uh, this is uh, back when John Kirby, who's now a spokesperson at the National Security Council, he was a spokesperson at the White House. And it, in, in October 2014, he was questioned by journalist Matt Lee of the Associated Press about NATO expansion and the role that was playing in fueling the proxy war to look at this and say the reason that the Russian army is on NATO, uh, the, the Russian army is at NATO's doorstep is because NATO has expanded 
rather than the Russians expanding? That, in other words, NATO has moved closer to Russia rather than Russia moving closer to NATO? Is that not an accurate way to look at this? I think that's the way President Putin probably looks at it. It's certainly not but the way that we look at it. You don't, you don't think that NATO has expanded eastward toward Russia? NATO has expanded, okay. and, and the expansion so the has reason, been a good thing for... So the reason that the Russian army is at NATO's doorstep is not the fault of the Russian army, not the... It's not the Russian army that's done it. It's NATO has moved closer to move east. I'm pretty east. sure it wasn't NATO who was ordering, you know, upwards of 15 battalion tactical groups to within 10 kilometers of the border with Ukraine. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't NATO who put little green men inside Ukraine to destabilize okay. eastern well, I'm states. I'm pretty sure that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So unless that's changed. It's not, it's not okay. changed. But I'm so, pretty sure the movement by Russia is NATO, has, If NATO has moved east. The reason that the Russian army is closer or on NATO's doorstep is because NATO moved. Not NATO is not an, an anti-Russia alliance. NATO is a security alliance. For 50 years, it was an anti-Soviet alliance. So do you, not understand it, so do you not understand how or can you not even see how the Russians would perceive it as a, as a threat? And the fact that it keeps getting closer to their border while their troops... I mean, the, the places where their troops are, you say their troops are, and may, may have been in Ukraine and Georgia, are not NATO members. I don't have, I'm not going to pretend to know what goes in President Putin's mind or Russian military commanders. I mean, okay. I barely got a history degree okay, at the University of South Florida. Right. What, I can tell you, what I can tell you is that, is that uh, NATO is a defensive alliance. It remains a defensive alliance. Fair enough, but it has moved east. Correct? I mean, that's just a it fact. It has expanded, absolutely. Right, exactly. But it's there's no reason, reason for anybody to think the expansion is a hostile or threatening move. And we've been saying that throughout the last 15 years, Matt. It's like you're, you're moving closer to Russia. You're blaming the Russians for being close to NATO. No, no, no. That's, that's exactly what Hegel's We're blaming the Russians for violating the territorial integrity of Ukraine and destabilizing okay. the security which situation. Which is not a NATO member. Which is not a NATO member. Other you countries feel threatened. That was Jen Psaki, I think, uh, coming in at the end. But um, that's an example of... Uh, this U.S. attitude where we expand NATO to Russia's borders and then we act indignant when Russia responds and even seeks security guarantees prior to, to the invasion, as you mentioned, Russia did back in December 2021. Yeah, and I, if you saw the rhetoric being used as well, this is what you see from the media. So he's just pointing out a very narrow, clear argument is the journalist saying, listen, uh, <clears throat> you're, you're complaining that Russia's closer to NATO borders. Well, we're the one expanded, right? Like we got to their border. It's like, yeah, that's what Putin wants us to think. It, I mean, it's, it's not even an argument. It's just now you are repeating yeah. Putin's uh, lines and you're against us. This is, you know, this is uh, what, what, what you do in conflicts. This is also a bit in human nature. You know, we divide between us and them. And uh, if, if, if you don't fall in line with the narratives, now we're putting in a them camp. So now you're talking, you know, like the enemy. And it's... Uh, it's an yeah, it's a good way of uh, yeah censoring or yeah shaming or labeling those who attempt uh, well any attempt of dissonance, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, yes, it's not very helpful at all. And I think uh, uh, if yeah, I can just quickly on this comment, he said that NATO, uh, you know, NATO is not a threat to anyone. It's a very strange argument because you know threats are usually assessed by capabilities and intent. Now capabilities can be permanent. The intent, you know, is you don't know what the intentions are, and also it can change. But this, I think, this is also what makes NATO very dangerous from my perspective because it has two problems. One has a very hegemonic view of security. That is, uh, you can only have security if NATO dominates. Uh, much like the U.S. security 
concept suggests. You know, the only way you can have security and stability in the world is if you have U.S. global primacy. You can't decouple that from security. And the second is this uh, idea that uh, NATO is not a threat to anyone. It's just a force for good. We just want to have democracy, peace, and you know, human rights. Uh, so we can expand the world's biggest military alliance up to your border, one that's actually very openly attempting to contain you. And uh, it's it's not a threat to anyone. Uh, you know, we can be bombing countries who never threatened us from Yugoslavia to Libya, and we still refer to it as a defensive alliance in the same breath. And anyone who disagrees challenges it. Well, they're now doing saying what Putin wants us to think. It's just it's this very insane propaganda which uh, makes it impossible to have any sensible discussion here. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. What a great guest. Yes, uh, I think that was his first time on Useful Idiots. Yeah, um, it was, yeah. And uh, nice to meet and interview Glenn Deason. Uh, his book, again, is called Russophobia, Propaganda in International Politics. Very relevant to Very relevant. our current international politics where Russophobia is rampant. Yeah, and make sure you subscribe to our Substack at usefulidiots.substack.com or if you prefer locals, you can go to usefulidiots.substack locals.com so you can hear the full chat with glenn and we talk about things like the nord stream pipeline bombing the seymour hirsch article on it and the china peace plan all right we'll see you next week everybody thanks for tuning in hello thank you so much for listening to and watching useful idiots for full episodes and extended interviews please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com you can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.